Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, please open to, to Matthew chapter 15. It's probably the easiest place to find it. We're actually going to be a few verses back. Um, we're going to start at Matthew 14, verse 34. Um, but that's just three verses before Matthew 15. So if you find Matthew 15, you'll find where we're going. Okay, so Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. Let's pray, and then we'll look at our text. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you uh, for the gospel of Matthew. Um, Lord, I pray that as we work through this passage today, um, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts, Lord, that you would give us um, clarity of understanding of what was happening um, in that context, Lord, that you would help us to see areas in our own life, in our own culture, Lord, that we do similar things. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to examine our hearts, Lord, as, as we've sung many songs to you this morning, Lord, crying out um, that you would give us new hearts, that you would make us clean, uh, Lord, that you would transform us uh, from the inside out. Lord, it's so easy to fall into uh, tradition of man and seeking to please you through, in external ways, while our hearts are rotten. And so, Lord, we, um, we call out to you, Lord. We are desperate for you. We need you. Lord, we are not able to uh, transform the heart from within. And so, Lord, we understand the condition of our hearts. We understand that we need your help and your grace and your mercy towards us. We thank you, Lord, uh, that you do work in our lives and that you do uh, transform us into the likeness of Christ. And so we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Matthew 14, verse 34. When they'd crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have, that would help you, has been given to God. He is not to, he is not to honor his father and mother, and, th- and by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would 
Lord, that you would help us to understand this passage, that you would help us to see, Lord, how it applies to our lives, that it wouldn't just be some text that we're studying about some time long ago, but that your word um, would speak to our hearts, would it convict us. Lord, may it ultimately guide us uh, closer to you. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Okay, so we, we overlapped the verse that we, we ended with last week in verse 34, just to sort of get us in context. In verse 34, it said, when they had crossed over, they came uh, to land at Gennesaret. Um, so where did they come from? So Gennesaret is, is uh, sort of in between uh, Magdala and Capernaum. It's, it's just a little landing there. Um, we know that they started, or after this week, you know, sometimes you study the scriptures, and then all of a sudden you're, you're challenged uh, geographically sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so I still believe that the, the miracle of the 5,000 happened up at Bethsaida. But, it, but as I was sort of, you know, the Israel trips kind of get on the way and I'm kind of going over the itinerary of teaching and one of the stops that you go to in Israel is you, you go to um, the, the site of the multiplication. And, and so there, they have it down here by Magdala. And, and, and so, but it's, it's greatly disputed. And so I, I, I realized, well, I'm like, oh, man, did I just meet, mislead everybody for the last few weeks? But I, I mean, I knew it, but I'm like, ah, no, as I, as I do it, I kind of think it makes more sense, Bethsaida. But I, I just wanted to let you guys know that there's just some, there's other thoughts on it. So it doesn't make sense in today's passage that they, um, well, we'll see that they, we, that they crossed over to the other side. If the multiplication happened here, it doesn't make sense that they'd go like a, a couple hundred yards, have a big storm, and, and, and take all night to where they could have just walked along the beach. It, it seems to make sense that they were from Bethsaida getting to Capernaum. So that's the story I'm sticking with for, for today's. Uh... <clears throat> so kind of how did we get here today? Remember, our story sort of picked up. It goes back to Nazareth. Jesus ends up in his hometown. He begins teaching them. Uh, he's rejected as a prophet because that's his hometown. They all knew Jesus. They, he grew up with him. He knew his mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, a, a prophet is, is respected everywhere but in his hometown. And so they leave Nazareth. They end up at Capernaum. Uh, Jesus gets word about John the Baptist being executed uh, by Herod, the Tetrarch who ruled in Tiberias. Um, there seems to be some, some grief associated with it that Jesus wanted to get himself and the disciples to some, t- some time away, um, a, a bit of respite to sort of to mourn the loss of John the Baptist, to recuperate from some of the ministry that they've been doing. And so they transit from Capernaum up to Bethsaida, up here to the, the northern region of the Galilee. There's nothing up there. Um, it's a, ve- a very desolate place. And when they get there, uh, the crowds had sort of spotted them and there were thousands of them, 5,000 men we know for sure. They, it's speculated that there was anywhere from 15,000 to, to conservatively 25,000 people that were there that Jesus began to teach and to minister to and to care for. And that's the site of the multiplication of the, the, the five loaves and two fish, the, the little uh, lunchable meal that I've been describing, a very small meal. Uh, the people then wanted to make Jesus their king. They were ready to coronate him. They were ready to, to establish him as their king to overthrow Herod and Rome. And uh, he'd fed them, so they were happy. Uh, Jesus sends the crowds away. He sends his disciples out into the lake. He, he says, go across the lake. Uh, we believe that their intention was to hit Capernaum, to go back to their, their sort of their home base. Jesus goes up into the hillside and he spends some time praying. He has a location where he can see the disciples, and as the disciples head out that night, uh, a storm kicks up, which was unusual. Uh, the storm was contrary to them, we're told, and it pushed and pushed and pushed, um, leading them off course so they missed their mark. But the, the really the, the, the wonderful thing there is in the midst of the storm, Jesus sees them. He says, oh, I'm going to go like out to my guys. And so he walks out on water to them. They see him. They're horrified. They think it's a ghost or something, and... And Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's okay. And Peter, I love Peter. He says, Jesus, if that's you, call me out onto the water. That's just awesome. Most people see somebody out on the water. They want to bring him into the safety of the boat. But Peter says, let me come to you. So then Peter walks on water until his faith sort of gives in on him as he looks at the circumstances. 
uh, Jesus hops in the boat eventually, and they, the, everything calms down. They make their way to Gennesaret, which is um, south. For those of you that may, were on the last Israel trip, this is, um, this is where the Jesus boat is located. Um, and so that's where our, our, our story picks up in verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, Jesus at this point in this region was very easy to see. So some people see early morning. I don't know if this is pre-dawn. We don't have, we don't have the sense of, of the time. I, I, we get the impression that this is early morning. Um, some, some men there in the town, they recognize that it's Jesus coming ashore. And so they sent word to all of that surrounded the district and brought him all who were sick. So Jesus now has this reputation that Jesus has compassion on people. He heals people. Um, when, we, when we look at from Jesus' perspective, his mission doesn't seem to be that of healing. It, it seems to be that when he sees people with ailments, he's so driven by compassion that he heals them. He tells John the Baptist earlier when John the Baptist is in prison questioning if Jesus was indeed the, the, the promised one. Uh, the, the, the confirmation that Jesus sends to John the Baptist through his disciples is, Tell them what you see. Tell them about the healings and the miracles. And so um, these, these miracles seem to be some sort of authentication to, to authenticate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he has uh, this power. And so they, they bring all who are sick. In verse 36, they implored him, um, and, they, uh, they, and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many touched it, they were cured. Um, so the scene is these, these, these people with physical needs, ailments, uh, they've heard word of Jesus. They want their ailments cured. They, they want to be healed. I, I think this is something that we deal with in this life. Uh, we have the second law of thermodynamics, which is a result of the fall of man, that when sin enter, entered the world, death spread to all men. And so our bodies are in this process of decay. Um, I, I do believe that Jesus will ultimately heal everybody, um, that, that, but not in the way that we might like, that, that death is actually a form of grace. It's, it's the God's way of freeing us from this sinful body and, and the stain of it. Um, but, but in this life, we still have ailments. We have sicknesses, and, and, and we call out to him for healing, and we see that God does heal. Um, the, these people are pressing to, to get to the uh, what, what's the, the word here? It says, um, to the fringe of his cloak. Think of, think of like a rabbi with a prayer shawl, like almost like a scarf. And at the end, there's like tassels at the bottom. Those were their, sort of their, their prayer tassels. And the thought was, if they could touch it, um, it sort of symbolized um, the spiritual nature of the man. And if they could touch it and, and, and be connected to him, uh, then, then they would receive healing. Now, they were told that they were cured. Um, I want to point out that this isn't some sort of, um, this isn't a, a, a rabbit's foot. This isn't some sort of uh, magical trick that's happening. This isn't like, oh, if you just go to this spot um, and you'll be healed. If we go back to chapter 9, verse um, 20, it's only a few chapters back, there's a very similar story. And we'll see that their action is actually um, their faith being demonstrated through this. This action is actually uh, the, the byproduct of their faith. It's not that the, the cloth is um, magical in any sense. So back in J Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, we read about this woman. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Uh, for she was saying to herself, only if I touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And so we see that the, that the healing, that, that the action of these people they, that, that's demonstrated in this woman, that their faith was driving them to Jesus. And, and they believed if they could get to him, if they could touch him, that he would do the work in their life. Um, and so she was made well. Uh, back to our story here, Matthew this little section, sort of a, a flying through section, um, it sort of kind of connects the one story to the next story. 
on one side of me, there's like, okay, we'll just kind of fly through this. We've, we're, we've, com- we've just completed 14 chapters of Matthew. It doesn't take long to get into the Gospels to realize, oh, Jesus just healed another person. Jesus healed another person. Jesus healed another Oh, yeah, Jesus healed all kinds of people. No big deal. We'll just kind of move along. So on, on one side of me, there's like the, the moving along. But on the other side, the slowing down. And I don't just want to gloss over this, but this is, this is huge. Um, that Jesus, every which way, from his teaching to his healing, all, all things point um, to, to the fact that he is the Messiah. In two weeks, Daniel's preaching. Um, there, there's a section there where people are coming to him wanting to see miracles. And at that point, he says, I'm pretty much done giving miracles. Like the only miracle you're going to receive is the sign of Jonah from here on out. And, and I'll let Daniel teach on that. He's all studied up and yell at me if I'm wrong. You know? But the sign of Jonah, he's saying that he, he's prophesying his death, burial, and resurrection. And so really, the, thing that we need, the only miracle we need is that Jesus conquered death. He rose from the grave. And, and in his death, burial, and resurrection, we have life. Um, and so we'll move into chapter 15 because the whole, the whole narrative really shifts here. Um, <clears throat> the big boys have come to town. <laughs> Jesus is in trouble. We read that some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Okay, so we're, we'll, we'll call, we're just in the Sea of Galilee. Um, Jerusalem, <clears throat> I'm not sure, as the crow flies... I don't, assuming a crow flies in a straight line, has anybody verified that crows fly in straight lines? Like, we use this phrase. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, 80 miles, 60 miles north, like straight line. But, to, but today and back then, the, the way that you would have to go, you have to go down the western edge of, of the mountain that Jerusalem is on. You'll go pretty much to the coastline. You work your way up, and then you can basically cut across. So it turns out to be, um, to do this transit to, in today's time, this is about 100 miles, and they're walking. So this is like a big deal. Like the news, Jerusalem is a huge, huge city. I mean, it's still today. For, for, for the rest of this, like as long as the world exists, Jerusalem in many ways is like the capital of the world. This tiny little city there's more news reporters there than anywhere else in the world. There's all sorts of things happening. And, and it was the same during their day. But these Pharisees and scribes who Jesus had visited Jerusalem, you know, a couple times a year for the holidays for his whole life, they get word about this Jesus who's doing things up in the Galilee region. And so they're going to make the transit up there um, to, to sort of continue their, 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 their poking and prodding of him. Uh, we know that they have it in their hearts that they are ready to, um, to, to execute him. They just need to kind of come up with their plan about how they're, they're going to do this. And so maybe this is part of their documentation process, part of their digging. How can we get this guy? And so they come to Jesus and we read, and they said, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? So this is a I appreciate with what they they say. Um, we're going to see in our passage this this sort of um, this compare and contrasting between tradition and the commandment of God, and and sometimes we we take and it's very easy to fall into traditions of men um, and to believe that our traditions are on par with the word of God. Um, and, and Jesus very clearly is going to confront this. I, I, um, th- this is a huge thing. Uh, this, this whole week, this whole passage, I was kind of thinking, oh, I should do something silly at church on Sunday. And so my silliness, like, I'm like, oh, I think I just want to go and like preach in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt and see how people would react. And so I ran this by Anna, and she's like, no, 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 no. What you really need to do is you need to wear a suit (laughs) to the first service, because that'll freak everybody out, and then wear shorts and flip-flops to the second service. I'm like, yeah, that's too much work, and I don't even think anybody would care, which is a good thing. Um, But but there's all sorts of things. 
the, the traditions, whether good or bad, traditions start. And like a good, there could be things that we individually, that, that we sort of put bumpers in our life so that we can honor God's word. But then those bumpers sort of, we, they, they sort of become mountains and, and we start projecting them on other people. Uh, we see this with style of music. If, if you're a pastor that's asked to speak at any church, you know, the big question from pastor, hey, what translation of the Bible do you use? Because I don't want to ruffle somebody's feathers by showing up with a New American Standard if you're, you know, some other translation. And, you know, most of are like, oh, we don't care. We just show up with a, a healthy translation, you know. Um, and so they come and they say, why are your disciples violating the tradition of the elders? So what have they done that's so grievous that the, that the scribes and Pharisees have made this transit a hundred miles to go out of their way. I don't know if they were going there fishing for um, for anything, or they got word about this, or they get there and they it's the first thing they saw, so they jump on it. This accusation, but they 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 ask Jesus this question, or they're why do you why do you why do you break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Um. So the first thing we need to sort of straighten out is the whole washing of hands. We, um, we're supposed to wash our hands, or you know, we, we're supposed to wash our hands for hygienic reasons. You know, whether you do or not, that's your own business. I'd say that's your own business. You know, we're, we're country folk, you know, <laughs> like get the big chunks of dirt off, whatever, wash your hands. All the ladies are getting, no, you're supposed to wash your hands. It's really important all the time. But our reasons are hygienic because like during the flu season, during all this stuff, like there's germs out there and people don't want to get sick. And so we say, hey, use, use your, you know, wash up, lather up, wash your hands uh, as much as you can so that we don't get other people sick. That had nothing to do with what was, was happening there. Th- this wasn't for hygienic reasons. Um, th- this was an elaborate ceremony prior to, to every time that you would eat. Uh, you'd go through this religious motion of, um, of a hand-washing ceremony. I mean, it was a ceremony. Henry Ironside referred to this tradition. He said it, it's the equivalent of a baptism ceremony for your hands before every meal. So imagine whenever we have baptisms, you know, there's normally like a big deal. Like you, you, somebody talks, you go through certain things, everybody's watching. Then you dunk the person, you say how like awesome it is. And for all of the reasons you go through it. But every meal... This was a, a baptism ceremony for the hands. This, this was all about uh, traditions that, that had nothing to do with the word of God. There, there's, there's, there's no law laid out in the Old Testament concerning um, this process. So I do appreciate that they, <clears throat> that they come at Jesus and they say, why are you breaking the tradition of the elder? So I do ver- I, I appreciate that. In today's context, a lot of times when people are coming at you for a tradition, They'll say, why do you violate the word of God? And it's like, well, where does it say that in the Bible? Like, where are you getting this from? Because it's so easy to take a conviction that's not from the Bible, that, you, that God may have convicted you on something, but then to quickly canonize it and to say, this is in the Bible. So where is that in? It's, well, it's in Second Opinions 3.16 or whatever. You know, that's real. Hold on to Second Opinions. It's, <laughs> there's, um, and so they say, what are they doing? And so Jesus is the great, great rabbi. When they would communicate, it was brilliant. They would often um, respond with one another through questions. So, so they would ask Jesus a question, then Jesus would come back with a question that would sort of ca- cause them to think. Uh, and I do think that there's value in our culture and our day for trying to communicate with people in this way, that when somebody asks a question or you're, you're kind of going down the road, um, before you just sort of dump your spiel on what the Christian answer is or whatever, if you can communicate in a way that you ask him a question, like, now, why are you asking that question? What's, what's sort of behind the scenes what, so that we begin to see where people are coming from, um, ultimately to answer their question or to deal with the, the real issue? Um, so Jesus answers and says to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, this is a hard question. This is a question that I don't even think that they have begun to understand um, how Jesus is going to decimate them. 
Because they don't, <clears throat> if you ask them, hey, do you think that your traditions violate the word of God? They'd say, absolutely not. So Jesus says, well, why are you okay um, maintaining these traditions at the expense of the word of God? And then he's going to give them a very quick example. And so the example he gives in verse 4, he's going to quote from the fifth commandment. And he's going to say, for God said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of his father and mother is to be put to death. So he says, here's the fifth commandment. Um, th- this, this commandment comes with, gr- with, with great significance, great warning, great punishment, if not um, maintained. He says, well, God said to honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of his father and mother is to be put to death. They're like, well, we don't, we don't disagree with that. But Jesus isn't done with them yet. <clears throat> And he says in verse 5, he's going to speak of this, this what was referred to um, as the, the law of Corbin or the tradition of Corbin, which I will explain here in a second. So he says, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. Um, he is not to honor his father or mother. See, the wording here is always very different. I want to make sure I emphasize that in the right places. Whatever I have would be given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for your tradition. So, so this law of, or this tradition of Corbin, this is sort of like, um, in, in today's context, would be the closest thing to sort of a, like an irrevocable trust. And so a person that's, that's living their life, a young person, they have aging parents, they have some stuff. The, the, the spirit of the law says you're supposed to care for your parents. There's like, there's no social security sort of, the, the system set up was the children cared for their parents. And, and as the children could see the parents declining and they have stuff, like whatever stuff they had. So what they would do is they'd go down to the temple and they would basically uh, assign their stuff as dedicated to the temple. Like, hey, we... Um, we're going to give, commit our stuff to, to the temple. Um, when I die, it's going to the temple. And so according to the, the, the tradition of Corbin, uh, they, they couldn't give any of it to anybody else because they're honoring God with their stuff. But they were allowed to use it sort of however they pleased for themselves, but not for anybody else. So it was a really spiritual thing to, to sort of diss people, to like cut your parents out of t- caring for them but at the same way, to, to come off as really super spiritual. Um, the life application commentary, just to, to make it more clear than what I just said, um, the practice of the tradition of Corbin, literally meaning offering, meant that a person could dedicate money or property for God's exclusive use. When this happened, the money would be reserved for the sacred use and withdrawn uh, and for, reserved for sacred use and not allowed f- from use by anyone else. But the benefits could be used by the donor, much like an irrevocable trust works today. Uh, this vow was grossly misused. A man could use an article vowed to God indefinitely, but could not transfer it to anyone else. Unscrupulous people would even use this vow to keep from paying debts. Others, as Jesus noted, used it to circumvent their responsibility to their parents. Their devotion to God had stripped them of their compassion from people. And I would probably go on to say that it wasn't so much their compassion for people or their devotion to God. It was more their selfishness. And, and the scribes and Pharisees endorsed this. This practice was, was blessed by them. They were the ones sort of signing the contract to God. Now, if you think it through a little bit, because in this, in this context, Jesus is really addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. Because who ultimately is benefiting? Like these Pharisees and scribes, they're basically, every time somebody dies, oh, all that stuff is Corbin. Family doesn't get it. We get it. These are like, uh, you know, swindlers in a lot in a lot of respects. So Jesus is saying, you're, you're doing this, and they're, 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 not, they're not even caring for their people, and you're using sort of man's traditions to basically totally violate God's law. And you're the very people that are supposed entrusted with, with teaching the people to honor God. Um, I love what Spurgeon says about this. He said they, referring to the, the Pharisees and scribes, were agitated about the hands unwashed 
and yet they laid their foul hands upon God's most holy law. And so Jesus is confronting them of their hypocrisy here. They're coming all this way. You know, Jesus just, there's a little bit of, there's got to be irony, I think is the word I'm looking for. Like what miracle did Jesus just do? Like just before walking on water, like the day before, Jesus just took five loaves and two fish and fed 25,000 people with it. And the scribes and Pharisees are like, hey, why didn't your uh, guys wash their hands before they distributed that bread? That's a, like what, how could you? And so in verse seven, he's not done with them. Like it it was bad up to this point, but now now Jesus is going to turn to to one of Israel's most respected prophets, the prophet Isaiah. And he's going to quote from Isaiah and say, when, when Isaiah wrote this, um, I believe, it, I think it's like six or 700 years prior to Jesus' time, he was actually speaking about you all. And so here he says, you hypocrites, in verse 7, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, now, he's going to say, uh, ultimately, Isaiah is going to say two things that Jesus is saying was directed at the scribes and the Pharisees. <clears throat> the first thing he says is dealing with, with their hearts. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so there's this, this picture of, of the outside um, making this appearance of being very religious, very godly. It's a superficial front. But, but deep within, at the, the core of their being, that the heart, and this word will be mentioned a couple times down in verse eight, uh, 18 and 19, God seems to really care about the heart. When you read through the whole of the scriptures, it says God doesn't care about your sacrifices. He cares about your heart. And so he says that these people, they're trying to honor them with their lips, and they're, they're sort of like the, the Eddie Haskells of religion. For those of you that remember Eddie Haskell, you know, he would go to Mrs. Cleaver and, and uh, he would be like, oh, I'm really good. We're not going to get in any trouble. And it, it's like we all just hated him because it was like everything you're saying, it's just you're, you're, you're lying and you know it, but you're trying to come off as just a really good person. And so Isaiah says, Jesus saying to them, these religious people, that you're, you're worshiping God with your lips, but your heart is rotten. And God cares about your heart. But in vain do you worship me. The second part, uh, teaching, as, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So he says, you're out there teaching this stuff about these, this baptism with your hands. And you think you're worshiping with me with this, but you're not worshiping me at all. You guys are so off. And he seems to, at this point, to disengage with the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he pulls the crowd of people that were gathered to him, that were all being healed, that they seemed to be sort of the, the, the poor in spirit, the helpless, the ones that had nothing to offer Jesus. They just, they just wanted to worship him. They wanted uh, his touch. He pulls the people to him who are witnessing this whole dialogue amongst the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says in verse 10, after Jesus called the crowd to him and he said to them, hear and understand It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. And he wants them to understand that that it's not about externals. It's it's about within. That that you can go through your whole life and, as he says, like paint up, paint, um, you know, whitewashed walls. That you don't clean what's on the inside. Um, I'm... One of the things I hate about painting more than anything, like I actually enjoy, I find painting therapeutic when I'm doing it. Like the actual, like if you start with a totally brand new wood and you're outside so you can splatter, there's no danger. Just painting, oh man, it's fun. But the painting that's like, oh, that's a 30-year-old shed. I'm just going to get a big thick roller and just roll a bunch of paint over that. And who cares about the dirt? Who cares? Like, I'm not even going to wash it down. I hate the prep work. Like, I, I, like, I can't stand it. And Jesus is sort of saying, like, this is like going to paint a building that's like got cobwebs, holes, rotted wood. And you just go, well, just, we just slap on more paint. Like, you just, you just slather it on there. You, you haven't dealt with the problem. 
And for me, sort of, I don't know, I can't really, I don't, the churches that I attended and went to sort of before I became a Christian, I can't necessarily, I can't really judge them too accurately because it was so long ago and my memory so, so off in a lot of ways. But I remember that when, when my buddy started inviting me to that church on Tuesday nights for a Bible study and free, like I remember well, it was free pizza, there was Bible study, it was a small little group. And I so resisted going because I, I told him, I'm like, I've been to church. I don't want anything to do with this. And, and, and I, I know I've shared a bunch of times, but, but I only have one story and now I came to Christ. So I'm like limited to share that story over and over again. Um, but I made that, that deal with him th- that I would go once if he promised never to ask me to church again. And then as I went to the church and I, and I continued to go back, because one of the deals, I'm like, I'm wearing shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt, and I don't care what they think about me. And initially, he said, well, that's okay, because the pastor's an ex-pro surfer, so he'll be in t-shirts and shorts. And a, like, he might not even be wearing shoes. Like, that was kind of like, so I'm like, that's interesting. That's not the church I grew up in. And so I went to the church the one time, and everybody was loving. And then for some reason, I was drawn to go back the next week. It was probably the free pizza. And then again, and then again, and then again. I, I continued going on these Tuesday nights. And I remembered at some point, my friend probably sort of asked me a very dangerous question. Because for any of you who have invited somebody to church, when they come and then they come back a second time, it's like, well, let's just let this, let's just let this play out. Like any question or any, you know, that might just rock the boat where they stop coming. But so he asked me, he's like, I'm kind of curious, like why, like why, you said you were only going to go once and yet you're, you continue to come back. And I'm sure he was terrified because of like, oh yeah, you're right, I should just stop coming. <laughs> but I remember like answering him and say, you know, this is the first time I've ever been to church where people kind of look past how I looked, like what I was wearing, and they seem to like just generally care about me. And I don't know that I buy into everything yet, but but I've never experienced this before. And so I, I say that not trying to like, I, I don't remember the churches before, but I, I really, being the, the church I was raised in, it, it felt very, you went through the motions of things, you did stuff, and what, what was going on inside, I, I don't want to say did it matter, but, but for me as a young person, it didn't seem to matter. It seemed that I had to like cross my forehead the right way, kneel the right time in the right place, stand up, sit down, go through all of the motions. So Jesus hears, is is trying to like get into the crowd's head. Listen, it's your heart. It's it's not eating with dirty hands. It's not combing your hair the right way or 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 speaking a certain way or doing certain things like that. That the things that come towards you and in like that doesn't defile you. But then he follows the the stream the other direction and he actually says that that the well in which your words come out, that's, that's the problem. So if stuff is coming out of you, whether th- things that you're saying, things um, that you're thinking that you want to say, um, your attitudes, your behavior towards other, all of that stuff is either coming out of a clean well or a dirty well. And the issue is, is what's in the heart, the, the core of who you are. And so Jesus is trying to break down this whole idea of, of tradition and works and, and external things that try to um, re- resolve your relationship with God, that, that he's showing you that it's from deep within. And, and now, so of that big crowd, we, we now get down to the disciples. We're going to get down to the disciples, and then we're going to get down to an exchange with my favorite guy in the New Testament, like Peter, like Peter's going to surface. So in verse 12, now the disciples sort of respond to him. Amongst the crowd, we have like the, the little crowd. He says, do you, they say, do you, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the statement? Now, this is interesting to me. This is, uh, we're so, when we look back and we read scribes and Pharisees in the Bible, we just think, oh, bad guys. Everybody hated them. They were wrong. They were doing all this stuff. But the reality is that these guys were, were respected, that these guys they were the they were the religious establishment. They had the power. They had the control. Um, 
to a, to a Jewish boy and man growing up, these were their elders who they respected. Um, and so they kind of pulled Jesus aside and he said, you know when you said that stuff to them? Like, you kind of offended them. You hurt their feelings. Like, <laughs> I don't know if they're trying to give Jesus some sensitivity sort of classes on how they could better confront them or if they're just kind of missing, like, like if they're seeing... Um, what Jesus is confronting the Pharisees on, and they're thinking, Jesus, you're overreacting to like what, what they said. And I kind of think following this out, when we look at Peter's life and we look at some of their lives going into, um, going into Acts, I think that there's a lesson here because I think that man-made traditions and when we start doing certain things, it's very difficult to break. Like it's, it's very hard to sort of to, to undo um, convictions that are founded upon sort of traditions of, of man. Uh, like there's a, side of, there's a side of me when I look at this. Uh, I've been a Christian, I think this is like the 20th year that I think, that the, to the best that I can identify, I became a Christian in 1996. So this is like my 20-year anniversary of being a Christian. So I've been a Christian for, for a while now. I've been sort of growing in grace. I understand grace. I... Um, but like even just this week about thinking like, oh, what if I, um, like what if I showed up in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt and I preached? And I'm kind of like the biggest struggle, like I don't think it would be with you guys. It would be with me. Like I, I, I like, oh, I can't do that. I think, well, maybe I'll wear like Levi's. Like I don't even think there's anything wrong with wearing Levi's and I'm talking your, like, like there's no problem with that. But because of my, like Catholic background rule, like I have these things sort of ingrained in me that are tradition. And I, and so I don't think it's wrong that I don't wear jeans. Like I'm not going to go as far as say it's wrong that I'm not wearing jeans, but I, I sense it's like, ah, you know, like there's no biblical reason why I couldn't come and preach. And I'm not even trying to make a case. Right? This is all within me, my internal. <laughs> but, but what we see, I think in them, the reason is it's so easy to be swayed and moved by things that aren't in the scriptures, that there's not. And we think that these things are, are placed there by God. And we see this, and like we're going to see Peter's life unfolding. We're, we're, the thing I love about Peter is, God, like what I really love about Peter is it exposes how gracious and patient that God is with us. Like after the death, burial, and resurrection, he's going to be sucked back into these traditions. These are that God's going to have to give him this like this crazy dream on the beach of Joppa, of the sheet with with I'm imagining lobster and bacon and ham and all of like the unkosher things that are delicious. Like that that he's trying to get into Peter's head and is saying, "This is clean." And, and that was even traditions that sort of came from the Word of God. So that's, a, that's even a, probably a bad illustration. But we know that, that these traditions of the, of the scribes and Pharisees r- ran deep within their, um, into their core. And so it can be, I think that the lesson to us is to really honestly to evaluate, like, why do I do what I do? Like, why do I, is this truly worship. And I think it's super important that if somebody has a conviction about something that is um, that is outline, outside, of, outside of the realm of Scripture, I think it's super important for you not to say, just stop doing that. Just violate your conscience because the conscience is a very important thing. And so if you, the key, I think, is to, to lead the person to Scripture and to show them and to, to allow the Spirit of God then to work in their heart so that, so that they're uh, consciences can be sort of reset um okay probably a bigger point but here like the but i think it's important i think all of this the essence of this is jesus is getting to the heart of worship and 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 what god really cares about but all we see is the external and so it's so easy um to focus on the external just to try to put on our christian faces and to go about our christian lives when our hearts are rotten so then Jesus responds in verse 13, but he answered and said to them, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. It sounds like the parable of the tares when he says, just like, let it grow, just let it grow. And at the end, he's going to deal with it. He said, let him alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So you, you almost, 
you almost get the, you almost get the impression that these guys who had all of this authority and they're, they're saying, you kind of offended them. And, and I, like, what are you doing? Jesus says, don't worry about those guys. Like, the, the Lord's going to take care of them. You just go about your own business. Like, there almost seems to be like this, like this shepherd within me that kind of like, it's like, well, Jesus, but like, what about those that he's leading astray? Shouldn't you go intervene in the blind guy that they're leading? Shouldn't you intervene? But he, like, I, I'm sure you can make a case from other, but he just seems to be like, let him alone. Let him alone. Let God deal with them. And now Peter, verse 15. I love Peter. I, I should have gone back to the, um, that previous, there's a previous parable when he asked them the question, do you guys remember a few weeks ago, he said, hey, do you remember, the, do you understand the parables I'm teaching you? And they said, oh, yeah, 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 we get it. <laughs> and then we come to this. So they've already said, oh, yeah, we get it, Jesus. We understand the parables. We're good to go. Now, Peter said, <laughs> explain the parable to us. Like Jesus has confronted them. Now he's, he's said to the crowds, he explained it sort of clearly. And now Jesus is going to get sort of like, in some ways, I don't want to say crass, but very colorful in his language. And our translators have done a good job sort of like toning things down. But he says to Peter, like, I just hear Jesus saying, really, Peter? Really? Like, I've been with you for how long? <laughs> and you're like, you don't understand, you don't understand this? Like, Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? But Jesus, with great patience, he continues to help Peter. And he says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and, and is eliminated? It, it, it literally, it, the literal translation is Jesus says, Are you, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is thrown into the latrine? Like that's like literally that he's like, it just goes straight into the commode. Like we get, it's a very colorful picture. Anna warned me not to expand too much on this, so I'm going to, like, follow her advice. Yeah, I'm just going to kind of move along. But you guys, he's just saying what you put in, it just passes through your body. He says, verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Like, so everything that you put in just goes, goes out, and it's away. But, but then following the other stream coming up, Like, those come from the heart. And the heart is so critical. And he's not talking about the organ that pumps blood through your body. Like, for the heart is your, the inner core of your being, that where everything about your thoughts, your values, what you care about. I've heard it said before that if you, you hit your thumb with a, a, a hammer... Like, what comes out, it reveals what kind of water you have. Like, do you have clean water or bad water? This could be convicting. It says the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and, and those defile the man. You're not, def, you're not defiled from out there. You could go live like a hermit and put yourself into a little Christian commune of just you, yourself. Like, just, like I don't even know if it counts as a commune if you're by yourself. Like a little, like a Christian hermit. That you can go live in isolation, but the problem is, is you still have you to deal with. And that really ultimately is the problem. He says, for, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat, your, to eat with unwashed hands, that's, that doesn't mean anything. We should have had a potluck today. Said so no. <laughs> don't worry about washing your hands. I got all the hand sanitizer put away. But we don't do that for religious reasons, or at least I don't. Um, so Jesus sort of like he, he gets to the core. This can be a. a, a, a like a terribly convicting place to be if, if, if you're honest with yourself. And I think that that's, like I, I think that that's the root of this, that we have to give an honest evaluation of who we are. And the, and the Bible like tells us, like, 
for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that we in our nature, we by birth, we by de- like we're sinful beings. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That, that, that because of Adam and Eve, it's affected all of us. And when we start evaluating our heart, ultimately, as we like give a fair evaluation of ourselves, like ultimately where it should drive us is onto our knees and we realize, you know, that song, like it's now Gideon's second favorite song, that I, Lord, I need you. Because on our own, our heart is terribly wicked. There's nothing that we can do. Like you can't just force goodness into your heart. We need a, a heart transplant. And I believe that that's what God is in the business of, of doing is, is heart transplants. And, and we're taking communion today, which is sort of symbolic of what Christ has done for us so that we could be made new in him. Because um, it doesn't say like, some traditions are, so it's so easy to like read traditions of elders, like this traditions of man, and then to say, well, all traditions are bad and all things are bad. Like this, this you know, the baptism of hands naturally leads me to like, like real baptism, which is a symbol, which is a, a tradition that, uh, that, that it's an ordinance really that the scriptures have created. Um, baptism by itself, water baptism, it's really like you're just getting dunked and being brought up. But the significance of it is it's an outward action. And what's the key? It symbolizes an inward action, like new birth that's already happened. It's just an outward thing. It's just like a wedding band that I'm wearing. That if I take it off, that doesn't make me unmarried. But it's this, this wedding band symbolizes something that actually happened. So I think there's some, like symbols are, 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 are good. And so when we look at this to the, car, the, the, the core of the issue of our hearts and we come to communion, I'm reminded of Proverbs 4.23, which, which there Solomon writes, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And for, for the sake of me, like I always, like I try to intentionally not put it in my notes, but I just can't. Like I get Johnny Cash stuck in my head. I watch this heart of mine to say, you know, like I didn't write down the words, but this whole, that whole song about keeping a close watch on your heart and, and walking the line. Um, as we walk the line with God, this watching over your heart with all diligence for fr- from it flow the springs of life. Like this is, this is, this is water t- to guard with everything. Your heart is critical. If you go to any place where there's water, I think of um, Israel as they're on the Sea of Galilee. By the time you get to the Galilee and the Jordan, the water's already getting sort of contaminated. But you go up to Benia Springs at Caesarea Philippi, that water where the it's coming out of the ground. It's crystal clear because it's pure water. And by the time it gets down to the Dead Sea, it's totally contaminated for any real use other than like mud baths and stuff, which means nothing to me. But some of you, it, like you like that stuff. Like I, that's a different subject. But so we're commanded to watch over our heart. And how do we do this? I think that the first thing that we, we, we need to be doing is to be in the word, to, to really be daily uh, communing with the Father, because as we as we read the Scriptures, what happens is it's, it's 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 we are opening up ourselves to allowing God to speak to us, and so as we read His Word, His Word goes into us. It leads to conviction, because there's a whole lot of times when I read the Scriptures and it's like, oh man. Like, I don't like what that says because it's confronting me with an issue that I have to sort of do, to work on in my heart. So often it's these inward things that you can't see. And then as we're convicted or he guides us through his word, it leads us to prayer because we're confronted with things. And it's like, Lord, I need you. And so then we begin to, to pray and to seek his guidance. That movie that we watched Friday night, like, was awesome. Uh, War Room was just a powerful, powerful movie on the importance of prayer, like being guided with the word of God. And then as we spend time in the word, as we pray and commune with him, what ultimately happens is the spirit of God within us begins to sanctify us, begins to, to, to cleanse us, begins to, to move us along in our journey. Now, like in Christ, where we are positionally sanctified, that we, we stand uh, with the blood of Christ on us, we're pure, 
Um, we're, we're good for salvation. But then there's this, this process of sanctification in this life where we become more like Christ, leading um, to our death and, and ultimate communion with the Father. I also think that a clean heart, like being, being um, grounded with church family, being connected, not just being here on Sundays, but, but really growing deep relationships. Um, the, the men's Bible study, we've been going Saturday mornings. There's been a good group of us. And yesterday, one of the things we talked about, an issue that I won't like, was, was how do we grow in this area? Like, how, how, do, we, um, how, how, do, you, how do we guard against a certain area of our lives? And, and one of the things is like this whole idea of accountability, that you have Christian brothers that are, that are close to you, that you trust, that, that when you have this depth of relationship, um, it affects you. It, it, you. You allow them to speak into your life on issues. And so I think these are, these are things that we can do to sort of, you know, guard our hearts because it's from our heart that everything flows. So I need everybody to go wash their hands before we take communion. <laughs> we have little cups and you can do it immediately. But, but we're coming to the Lord's table with unwashed hands. So, you know, you guys all washed your hands this morning. Like, now I'm freaking everybody out for a communion. <clears throat> but but see, the, see, the first step is, is understanding who we are in, in relationship to Christ. And communion is for those who have placed their faith in him, who have received the spirit. Like when you believed, you received the spirit. You're sealed in the spirit. And so communion is this time where we... Um, we reflect upon the body of Christ that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us in our place. And that his righteousness was, was, was imputed to us. That means it was credited to our account. Like I love we sang a song, you know, holiness, holiness is what you want. From, we sang it earlier today. Don took issue with that song. And so we tend to, when we take issues with songs, we just go ahead and we reword it so that we're theologically okay with it. But there's a, a, a line there that it used to say, righteousness is what you want from me. And we changed it to righteousness is what you gave to me, which is like, a, so somebody knows. So, so and I, you, know, you could splice hairs. I think that he wants righteousness from, from, from us so much that he gave it to us through the, through the death of his son. And so we take communion. It's this time for us to reflect before you come up or to come up, get your elements. You can sit down, um, spend time with the Lord, say, Lord, are there areas in my life that I need to confess? We're told that as we reflect upon um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as we take communion, we're, we're to remember what he did for us. We're to reflect and to ask God to show us areas in our life that we have sin in our life, that we need to confess, that we need to be um, renewed by him. And I think that the final thing that we're called to do in communion, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is, is as we take communion, we are reminded of our commission to proclaim the Lord's death, that we are called as believers to go out with this message that as we've received life with him, he has commissioned us to be his ambassadors. And so as you take communion today, I would ask you to, to, to think of a person that, that you know that doesn't know Jesus, that's that maybe you could be the nagging person to invite them to church or you could share the gospel with them or that's something that God would lead you to do to help in that person's journey uh, towards him. And so let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. Um, and Lord, as we look at this study, Lord, this scripture, Lord, we're reminded of of how much you care about our hearts, how much you care about what's underneath the surface. Lord, as people, we can't, I can't tell what really is going on under the surface of another person. I can guess, I can give it my best shot, but I don't know. But Lord, we come before you um, as the creator and sustainer of this world, our creator, the one who made us, the one who gives us breath, the one who gives us life. We know that you know all things. And so we stand before you as an open book. You know the condition of our hearts. You know areas 
that are dirty in our hearts. So, Father, I, I need you. We, we do not have the capacity um, to regenerate. We don't have the capacity to cleanse from within. And so, Father, first and foremost, we, we come before you asking that you would um, give us clean hearts, give us pure hands. Lord, help us not to worship another. Father, there are things that we can do to guard our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to grow deeper with you. Father, that you would light uh, a fire, Lord, that we would desire your, your word as a child longs for milk. Father, that we would hear your voice, um, that we would be quick to, 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 to confess, to repent, Lord. Father, we pray that you would just lead us in the direction that you desire us to go. Father, we pray that you would bring to mind friends, family members, neighbors. Uh, Lord, there are so many in our community who don't know Christ as Savior. And Lord, sharing in our culture, as it's always been, is, can be an intimidating thing. It can be a fearful thing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would gift us, Lord, to be able to, um, to, to, to share with others about Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us your eyes, your heart, Lord, so that when we see those who are lost, that we would really um, have compassion for them. We thank you that you had compassion for each one of us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.